How's it going? Awesome. Excellent. Tomorrow's my last day at my job, so I'm pretty excited. Can you give us a <laughs> scoop? You have a job? I've had a job for like the last year and a half. It's been, uh, it's been pretty crazy. And I uh, finally quit a few weeks ago. Tomorrow's my last day, so I'm excited to give back to doing some side projects and stuff so you're for a little while. Freelance? Well, or, I don't or think. Work, work on your own thing? So I'm going to work on my music. own stuff. Yeah, I'm gonna play some music. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna write another book. I've got. I've got a couple side, you know, side projects that's not really businesses, just side apps that I build and work on. So I'm gonna work on some of those, and I've saved up saved up some money so I can take some time off and do a little, uh, I guess, mini retirement kind of idea of. It's more. It's more just extended vacation, I guess. Retirement sounds like. <laughs> retirement sounds like somehow I hit it to where I don't have to work anymore. It's more <laughs> mini vacations. That's fun. So, do you do you want to tell uh, our listeners uh, about yourself in case sure. you don't know? Sure. Um, well, I'm Corey Haynes. I'm a software developer. I've been uh, who developing software for a long time. I was talking to a person the other day and realized that I'd been writing code longer than they'd been alive, which was kind of scary. Not professionally. <laughs> Not that old yet. Yeah, I've. I focus a lot these days on sort of fundamentals of development rather than sort of like new technologies and stuff. I am learning, um, learning a lot of, you know, I learn new languages and things like that, but I've really the last few years have been focused on sort of pulling everything back into what are the, you know, kind of the core principles of things. Yeah. I came up through the, I guess I came up through the Microsoft stack, um, doing, you know, bay, way, way back, uh, pre-ASP 1.0 uh, web development on uh, IIS, and then moved over into Ruby for a little while. Still do Ruby a lot. I love Ruby. And um, yeah, I've just been planning around. I've, I've spent a few years traveling around doing training, uh, software development training for, uh, you know, one, two-day workshops, these code retreats. And um, yeah, and then a year and a half ago, decided I was done traveling and got a job at an incubator doing, you know, where we start up, you know, the plan was starting up one or two businesses a year, um, take them, you know, into the market, build the technology, and then once they get to a certain point, build up a team around them and scale them, and then move on to another thing and work more as an advising kind of role. And so I did, we did that for about a year, worked on one of the companies, um, actually a, a fairly large old company that had been around for a while. So, And then um, recently we purchased a, a, another company and I'm sort of stepping out of the role there and deciding to go off on my own for a little while again and see how, see what I can make of it that way. So I'm curious about how that works mm-hmm. with the incubators. Like... Mm-hmm. Do you ever have trade-offs? Like, I'm sure they want to get, you know, their MVP out as soon as possible. So is there ever, like, code quality issues trying to get to market as quick as possible? Well, it's a big question around incubators and a lot of, like, startup, the whole startup scene. Um, I personally, I always uh, remember back to this great plaque I saw one time when I was uh, down hanging out at Hash Rocket, which said, um, don't build half-assed, just build half. And I really bring that a lot when I work with smaller companies and startups and people who want to get something out as quickly as possible is 
really sitting down and talking about what it means to be an MVP. What is it that, um, you know, what are the features and what's the extent of the features that we need to build in order to get the value that we're looking for from it. So if we're looking for whether or not there's a market out there, then we probably don't need, it's not just that we don't need all the features, but we probably don't even need 100% of each individual feature. And by being able to cut the scope down as much as possible, you can um, you can get it out there while still maintaining a certain level of code quality. I mean, there's always trade-offs. So I don't want to say that you go out there and, you know, I always write the greatest code, the most flexible code all the time. Um, and in fact, I generally, for these, uh, for these initial sort of proof of concept kind of things or proof of proof of market kind of applications, I'll generally write things very specific and not build an incredibly flexible system because you don't even know if you need that yet. But it gets back to that idea that, especially for an early stage company, while they're testing out the market, what they're really what they really need is code that's easy to change. Right. They don't need code that's very flexible. They don't need something that they can satisfy everybody with. They just need to be able to move quickly. And if they do see another market opportunity or they, they need to steer it a little bit, you know, 45 degrees to the right or something, you can get into the code base and make the appropriate changes fairly rapidly. So, um, right. And, and that's kind of, that's kind of what I, how I build things. And, you know, I've talked to, I've done advising for startups and it also depends on who you have building it. Like I've been building software for a long time and I've built a lot of different, I've built some horrible things and I've built things that were very hard to change. And I've built some great things that I've come back to a few years later and I'm like, wow, this is, I, I, I've actually built a system that is easy to change. Or I built, you know, I, I like this code, um, which is rare to come back to. Um, and so it depends on the, the sort of experience and skill level of the developers that you have working for you. If you have people who are inexperienced and you've, you know, your team consists of that for various, you know, oftentimes good reasons, then there's a different level of attention and quality and, and focus that needs to be done on the code base, as opposed to if you have like one person who's been developing for whatever, however many years and has been through a lot of it and is the one who's going to be updating it. You know, there's different... I guess quality means so much different, you know, it has different levels depending on who you have working on it and how often you're going to have to pass it off to another team or things like that. So I guess that's a long-winded answer to, <laughs> to say it all depends. Right. I think that's what, like, everything in software comes down to, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how, how would you build something differently for, for, like, a junior developer? Well, I guess... If you if it is just a junior, then you need to be very very explicit. Like, don't you know? Spend spend time actually making it uh, very very readable. If it's if you're building it for a junior developer who's going to be taking it on after you, then you know you really need to keep it at a certain level of like, don't cut corners. You know really just make it where they can come in and read it very, very easily. And that's, 
you know, that's kind of a rule that you want to do anyway. But depending on the experience level of people, they can, there's a different level of explicitness depending on the experience level of the developer. Like I was pairing with somebody on Sunday and not all of the code necessarily was this incredibly, you know, laid out like a book kind of stuff. It, he's a fantastic developer, so it was very, very good code. But, you know, I've worked with him before and I can go and sit down with him and read his code and I kind of get the sense of how he uh, tends to code. Whereas, you know, for somebody who hasn't worked with a lot of different people or who hasn't read a lot of code, you would really want to lay it out, make it explicit, you know, not, you know, maybe have, you know, potentially slightly longer methods, maybe not, depending on the, you know, kind of the person. So another long-winded answer to say it depends. Right. So we're going to talk about uh, your book, Understanding the Four Rules of Simple Design. Excellent. But I was curious, like, how did you first start caring about, you know, software craftsmanship and code quality? Well, I think it, I think a lot of it came, um, I mean, there's, it's, I remember when I first learned about, like, design patterns and UML and team-based development and it used to be that I would, um, the story I kind of tell is I would come into my team very early on in my career and I would have this big design and I would be trying to communicate with the other developers and I would come in in the morning and I would drop a stack of design documents down on their desks and I'm like, hey, we're going to chat about um, you know, my design this afternoon. And it was just some random pictures. I mean, I that tended to be clouds and trees and lightning bolts and birds and this just crazy, crazy sort of symbols that I had made up. And then over time, we had, you know, my team discovered UML and then we started looking at design patterns and just ways of making code very explicit and very communicative, not just the code, but the designs themselves so that people could understand it. And you know, I was doing that. And then in 2004, I got uh, introduced to, I went through a, uh, like a two week long intensive uh, extreme programming uh, training. Actually on the job, the company brought in object mentors. So we had um, Uncle Bob and Bob Koss and Lowell Lindstrom. I think I seem to recall Michael Feathers showing up uh, for a little bit. And coming through and pairing with us. I got to pair with uh, Bob Koss for quite a bit. And it sort of changed my view of how, how we should look at code. And while I had always sort of thought about code and as a communication device and a way of, you know, somebody's going to have to deal with this. When I got to really being brought in and talk, talking to people about extreme programming and all of the principles behind it, not just the techniques, but the fundamental principles behind it, um, honesty and courage and things like that, it really made me start thinking about a different relationship with my code. And then over the, you know, I started doing TDD and, and you know, a lot of that stuff. And over time, it really sort of laid out like, oh, wow, I can make my code very simple. I can, you know, I can write small methods. I can make code that's changeable things like that. And then I started working with teams and seeing the effect of very, you know, of code that is, you know, hard to understand code that's hard to change. 
And that started, you know, really hitting me that it's, you know, it, it does make a difference on being able to adjust with the business. Because since we all are writing code for business, for the most part, I mean, we're getting paid so that we can actually build systems that drive, you know, you know drive whatever it is the business does. It's important that we be able to keep up with the business and building, you know, good systems, quality systems, caring about the code that you're working on um, is really the way that you can do that. And so it's so we don't make it so that the business has to hire 200 developers. They can get through the same sort of thing with 40 or 45 or 20 or six or something a much smaller than that. And, and then I guess when I, in 2009, when I went traveling around peering with people, that was when I really got a strong sense. Like I was, I started working and actually coding with a ton of different people. And that's when I really started to get a sense of, Hey, different people have different views of it. There are people out there who write just beautiful, fantastic code. There's people out there who don't, there's people out there who want to, but don't quite know how, um, you know, and then there's of course people who just don't care. And so it, it just sort of over the years started realizing that it, you know, it does matter. You know, we've all, we a lot of people, we all have horror stories of going into a code base that is completely unintelligible. Mm. And yet, and yet we're, we have to maintain it. We have to add a feature. We have to fix a bug. And that's stressful. Like that's a horrible way to live is going in and doing that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, and yet a lot of the times we're writing code like that. Right. And if we pay attention and if we just do a little bit of practicing and, you know, really just, you know, spend an extra 10 minutes cleaning up your code. It's sort of making, making our very small and insular world a better place. So you mentioned that you traveled around a few years back. What influenced that decision? Well, a friend of mine, um, J.B. Rainsberger, and I had always talked about how cool it would be if we could just kind of go off and do kind of Paul Erdős style, travel around, pair, program with people, and just kind of go do, you know, just sort of see how people are programming and help them out and work with them. And I always say that I had... I had two problems at the time. One was a girlfriend and one was a job. <laughs> and it always kept me from being able to just kind of go out and, you know, travel the world and program with people. And so I would say in 2008, both of those went away. And I was like, huh, I might, I, this probably would be a good time. I have a little bit of money saved up. I probably could go out and, you know, go travel around and pair with some people. And I was having trouble finding anybody who would do it because most of the people that I knew at the time were working in larger companies and it's hard for them to go to their manager and say, Hey, my friend's coming into town. I was going to bring him into, you know, my big corporate office and pair with him. And so I actually ended up uh, seeing uh, David Chalimsky, who's who I'd known for a few years. And he had said, Hey, come to Chicago and, you know, come hang out at my house and pair for a little while. So that sort of kicked it off. But it was really about, there were two initial uh, plans. One was just to travel around and pair with people. And the other was an idea of 
um, I had talked to a lot of freelancers and a lot of independents who, or p- just people who work from home. And one of the biggest complaints I heard from people is just that they don't, they don't get to pair with people. They don't get to work with somebody. They don't, you know, it's a, it's a lonely world sitting at home, even if you have campfire or slack or something, it's still kind of a lonely life sitting, uh, by yourself every day. And, you know, there's a, there's a certain joy about the, the social aspects of programming, even if you aren't the most social person in the world, it is nice to get out and actually code with people and have a team around you. And so one of my original ideas was just to go around and provide people uh, a couple days of having somebody sitting next to them programming. And then it just sort of ballooned from there and I was going to do it for three weeks and then um, realized that I still had a little bit of money left and kept doing it. And then people were contacting me asking if I'd come hang out with them. And so it turned into about nine months. Um, and yeah, and it was just a, it turned into more just like, well, I, I can, I don't have anything else to do. So I'm enjoying this traveling around. So that, so just kept doing that. And it's, it was very uh, encouraging because I started getting contacted by people who wanted to do that themselves. And some people who could travel for a while and then some people who, you know, actually had a job and couldn't do it, liked the idea of pairing with a bunch of different people. And there were a couple, a couple people over the years who would like take Fridays off of work and go to another company locally, you know, in their city and just go pair with somebody on a Friday. And I thought that was a really great idea, a great way of doing it. I remember seeing people do that. It seems like a great way to just get, you know, fresh pairs of eyes and people with beginner's mind into your project. Yeah. So that, uh, that's sort of the way it, the way it all kind of started and then went down. I have a question about your book. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I should start with a real question or a silly question. You pick. Um, how about the silly question first? Why are you really fond of the word reify? Oh, I love this word. This is, <laughs> this is one of my favorite words. Um, I don't remember when I learned this word. But you know, so according to Google, it, like it's, it actually peaked in use around 2008. They have a chart over time of the use of the word reify. So maybe that's when you fell in love with it. You know, it may very well have been. Maybe Corey made it popular. Yeah, clearly, clearly, <laughs> um, I made it popular. Um, wow, that's a that's a great little bit of information to know. Um, I just love this word, and I probably you should tell people what it means. We haven't gotten okay. to that. Okay, sorry. So reify is to bring a concept into being. It's a let me let me get an actual depth. Uh, it's yeah, it's to make something something that is abstract more concrete or real. Yeah, so the way I always use it is to take an idea that's in your system, one of your, you know, usually one of the domain ideas, and you know, generally create a class out of it or create a, you know, actually put it into the system as a concept rather than, you know, oftentimes we'll take a concept in the system and name a variable that, like um, order, and we'll have a, you know, a variable named order but we don't have a class for it. We don't actually have a, a concrete concept for it. 
And I was I, I use the term reify or reification to sort of bubble up those domain concepts into actual classes. And in um, so for example, in Conway's Game of Life, which was which is sort of the example we use in the book, and also for coder treats, there are things like the you know whether or not the object is alive or not, or the location of the object is often passed around as x y, and that's such a core fundamental part of the problem. But we're just passing it around as integers, and not even integers that are coupled together, but just these x y's floating around. And so this idea of reification is taking taking a concept that is clearly there in your code and just creating a class for it, create an actual thing so that you can talk about it and have like a location object or a coordinate object or something like that. But I love so, this work. So almost in a way, do you think that reification is kind of what we do all the time in like in the, in when we talk about programming and or when, when we teach programming and there's that kind of big leap that people have to make from you know, let's manipulate strings together to, all right, now you get to write an application that what makes programming hard is taking abstract concepts and making them more concrete. Yeah, I think that's a great way to, to look at it as you, as we are developing it. And as you're teaching people, like, yeah, it's like, take the concepts and figure out what are those concepts and start building them up. I think one of the really hard things that you learn over time is which are the concepts that you need to bring into being or reify and which are the ones and when do you need to do it? Yeah. Like which ones are important? Yeah. And I think, I think that's a great way to look at, especially teaching, you know, people who are just moving into programming of, you know, why would I build a class? I, I was working with somebody last week who you know, we were working on this Python script and there was a lot of, you know, it was a lot of functions and there weren't really classes or anything. And, um, I had, you know, I was talking to her and she was like, oh, I, I don't really use a lot of classes. And I think it was that question of, do we, you know, what, what are the concepts there and are they important enough to bring into being? And we actually ended up not building any classes just because we were reifying more of the process itself rather than domain objects. Um, but bringing people in and saying, you know, it's not enough just to have this encoded in a string. You know, we're actually going to need to add some behavior to it or we're going to need to do these things. And having a lot of disparate behaviors strewn about our system um, as the system grows is not all that uh, nice when we come back to uh, maintain it. But, you know, if you're just writing a small script, I wrote a, a small little uh, thing that it, that connected up a Twilio SMS uh, gateway to uh, an API. And I didn't have any classes or anything like that. I just built a couple functions in there to do it because it wasn't, there wasn't anything in there yet that was screaming to be brought out, any abstraction that wanted to be made um, into a real concrete idea in the system yet. One of my favorite code street um, constraints is no core types like uh, integers or string, except in initializers. I find it's a lot of fun kind of extracting out all these things we just kind of pass around as numbers or booleans. Yeah, I think that goes back to that idea of 
learning, you know, we, we tend to pass around things and use the name of the variable to specify what the concept is and, you know, learning when it's time and when it makes sense to pull those up out into an actual object, an actual domain concept. Um, and when you, one of the, that code retreat constraint is explicitly about getting people away from using the name of the variable as the concept and just passing around to XYs, things like that. And so, you know, you have to, you can only pass user-defined types around um, in and out of methods. And that's really about learning which ideas are the ones that you want to bring into existence. I have my other question. Is this so the silly one? Because that was, was, was a great question. Oh, well, no, no, no. This is actually the, uh, the real <laughs> oh, question. Oh, okay, okay. In the book, because I, I did, you know, I did blaze through it. So I actually, you know, since we have you on the podcast, I wanted to ask you about when you were in the book, you were talking about procedural versus type-based polymorphism. Mm -hmm. And I actually am probably going to do a series on scary words and programming next month. And I, <laughs> because of reading your book, I want to use polymorphism as one of the scary words. Excellent. And... And so, so, and actually when I was reading up more on, so what, what do we talk about when we talk about polymorphism, it seemed, so polymorphism is being able to use, it seems like in, in one sense, it's being able to use something with different types. And so I was just kind of confused about when you were talking about what type-based polymorphism meant. Mm. And I guess, so I always, there's a bunch of different definitions of polymorphism, and I think it's a great it's a great candidate for a scary words of programming um, thing. And it's not just scary words, but words that, depending on who you're words talking to. Words that sound to, made up. <laughs> they sound made up. <laughs> um, and who you're talking to. If you're t different, people have different, not just definitions, but how they, how they think of these things. And so for me, I always think of polymorphism from the caller's perspective. So I'm, I'm a, a method and I'm calling another method. Usually it's, I'm sending a message to an object or I'm calling a method on an object. To me, polymorphism boils down to, I'm going to call this method and different things might happen. Like, I'm just saying do X and I don't know, but the, that X might be different. And I don't know why it might be different. And I don't know the cases it might be different. And from the caller's perspective, I don't care. I'm just going to say do this. And so polymorphism says that from the caller's perspective, different behaviors can happen based on oftentimes and generally different behaviors can happen based on something that is outside of the caller's control. And I would highly so, not recommend so that. So question, <laughs> would an example of that be implementing the empty method on different types? Well, yes. Or no? Yes or yeah. no? Yeah, it would be. So it, it, so, empty, if, so you call empty and you don't care how it gets that answer. Yes. But And it can be different types and you can see if they're empty. Because empty for one type might be different for another type. Yes, absolutely. So it's okay. I call empty. I don't care how you figure out you're empty. I'm just – and how you figure out how you're empty is sort of out of my control. I It may be because of different – types are passed to me. It may be because internally you have a bunch of uh, if statements and a bunch of, you know, conditional logic. Um, but I just know that I can call empty or I can call set opt or set 
sell or I can call, you know, all of these different things. Um, but from the caller's perspective, from the line of code that's actually calling that method, it doesn't know and it doesn't care um, what the actual behavior is or what the effect of the behavior is or, or how it does it. I'd probably recommend not having me explain it. <laughs> um, but it is like if you talk to different people, it's different. They have different focuses on it. And that's why I focus on or where I get to that type versus uh, procedural polymorphism is really from the caller's perspective, they don't care how the difference is done or the different behavior is determined. But if it's just inside the method, so it's, it's a single type and I call empty and there's five different ways that that type can figure out if it's empty. That's, you know, that's adding a bunch of different behavior and a bunch of different, uh, a bunch of logic into that one type. And in general, you want to take those and pull them into separate types. I think I'd do a better job of explaining it in the book. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think you showed, you showed like a, a conditional, based on the state of the object, these conditionals were basically returning different things, and then you extracted that to different types. Mm -hmm. That was a really good example. So kind of related to that, mm -hmm. but during construction, um, one part of the book you mentioned not having tests depend on other tests, and one of the examples were you expect a uh, new world to be empty, and then mm -hmm. later on you do world.new, assuming it's empty already, and then doing other things. And you mentioned that you developed a guideline that um, you like to, instead of doing world.new, saying world.empty to get an empty world. Um, I haven't tried not using, you know, .new in Ruby outside of, um, for external callers. Mm -hmm. um, this is really interesting to me. It was, it was one of the things in the book that was uh, kind of mind-bending that, to, to restrict myself like that to only use these, you know, class method constructors and not dot new. How, my one question about that, though, is mm -hmm. does that ever get unwieldy? Like, you have multiple ways to create an object? Um, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, just for the people who haven't read it, I do have a general guideline in that I try not to use the default constructor, so new in Ruby or new in... I guess most every other language, um, to construct my objects. I like to build a named method that will um, sort of say why I'm constructing this object. What is, the, what is the initial state that I'm expecting from? Because when you use a constructor, the goal and the, the, the entire purpose of a constructor of the, of the initialize or the new or whatever it is in your language is to give you an object that is in a valid state. And... Oftentimes, we construct objects in different states that are valid. So, for example, in, in this, you can have a world that is an empty world is a valid state, but you might also want to construct a world that already, like you construct it and you give it a bunch of cells. So you want to say that when, when you build me the world, make sure that it's pre-populated with cells at these locations. Those two things... Are, are really kind of separate. And naming the different states that you want to get in, so you might have a world.empty and you might have a world.with initial cells, and it it's really about going back to that idea that we've got to come back and read this. We want to name the methods that we call appropriately. 
And oftentimes we spend a lot of time thinking about how we, how we name the behavioral methods. And then we just sort of punt on it with the construction of the object. And we go, well, new. I just want a new one. But coming back to it, you know, it's like, are we, why are we constructing it in this way? And so I like to give myself, um, you know, sort of builder methods kind of off of the class or somewhere else, depending on the language. Ruby is nice because you can very nicely build um, a class. You know, you can stick methods onto the class rather than um, building, you know, big factory methods somewhere. And and so I like to do that. It It can get very unwieldy, but just like with a lot of things, um, like if you build with no if statements, it can get unwieldy. Um, oftentimes when you put on a constraint like this and it starts to become unwieldy, there's two decisions you can make. One is you can throw away the constraint or the other is you can say, I like this constraint and I think that the goal of it is good. So is there something about my design that is uh, flawed or not flawed, but is not optimal? So if you end up building a ton of these sort of constructor methods, named constructors, you can kind of think of them. If you end up building a lot of them on an object, it might be a red flag for you to stop and go, is this object doing too much? Are there too many ways to construct it? Why do I need all of these different ways to build it? Mm. And I've gotten to the point where, yeah, I get a ton of them and I'm just like, whoa, something is wrong here. You know, it, it, this is no longer providing me a good value. And why is that? Because it's a, it's a constraint and it's a principle that I really, really do like. So what's wrong here? And, you know, a lot of times it shows, it highlights a, a problem in the design. And, and sometimes it's just that there's too many ways to construct this um, object and it is unwieldy and then I drop back to using new. I'm not, I'm not one to say that there's any one thing that 100% of the time works and makes sense. But I, I do like these guidelines that when they do get to the extreme, they tell you something about your design. Yeah, one of the quotes I love from the book was um, comparing thoughts and ideas on this topic can sometimes yield insight into techniques for improving a code base, especially if the discussion centers around a concrete piece of code. However, they're ultimately fruitless when trying to reach some ideal of good design. <laughs> and this came like a day after at work, we were trying to come up with some list of things that we need to do, uh, like some, some sort of standards for our code. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... You know, that's one of the things I used to love. And I still love the after hours discussions about good design. um, But I used to love it even more. And you get into those big, long raging debates about, you know, what makes good design. And, you know, one of the things as you build more and have built enough systems and have worked with enough people and, you know, gone back and looked at enough systems is that there's no good design. There's only designs that are more appropriate for the situation. And for me, the types of systems that I, that I like to work on, that I like to build, the most appropriate design is one that is very flexible and one that I can change and that I can come back and read and understand. Um, I was just upgrading a system I wrote three years ago, upgrading the Ruby, upgrading basically upgrading everything about it, the Rails version, all of that. 
and I had a few, you know, I went back to it and it's a small system, which I, I enjoy building these really tiny systems. And I was surprised that, wow, I had actually put effort into naming things well and, um, you know, having very small methods, having a lot of objects in it or a lot of uh, types. And I was like, wow, this, this actually paid off putting this effort into it. And I don't think that the design decisions I made on that are appropriate for every single situation, but for small systems, it was. And I think in that case, that was a good design. And it was a, like I say in the, a, a book, and I, I tend to tell people, I, I prefer to talk about better design in a certain situation. What's the better design? And in order to do that, you have to have a couple different options, at least two. And say, like, this is a better design than that one because of X, because I'm going to be able to come back and understand it more. I'm going to be able to come back and change it. I'm going to be able to come back and, you know, um, add to it. These are the things that make a design the one you should choose. So we've gone pretty far uh, without actually enumerating what the uh, four rules of simple design are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the four rules of simple design, they were codified by Kent Beck back in the late 90s. Um, he had said that people were always asking him what makes good design and all of that. So he wrote these down. And the first one is that test pass. Um, that, you know, I, I like to say that it doesn't matter how great and beautiful your design is if you can't prove it works. Um, nowadays, we have, we tend to think of that primarily as automated tests, just because the feedback cycle is so much faster when you have automated tests. Um, the second one is, depending on who you talk to, there's, it's either good names or no duplication. I like good names. I think that of naming things very well um, will sort of lead you. You can, you can find duplication if you name things very well. And it actually works. You can find good names if you eliminate duplication. But we'll say number two is good names, which is, uh, you know, variables, classes, all of your concepts that are in there. Name them well. Don't just use, you know, single letters or, or abbreviations and things like that. Um, it's especially important, at, I think, at the class level where you start thinking about what are all of these, you know, the class is sort of this bundle of behavior. Name it so that the behaviors actually fit with the name. Um, and then the third one is no duplication or the dry principle. This is the, the, I think, the more subtle one, which is it's not really about duplication of code. It's about duplication of knowledge. Uh, the dry principle itself, which uh, a pragmatic programmer sort of brought out, Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas, uh, when they wrote that. And it's the you know, don't repeat yourself. And it's really a, how knowledge in your system should have one and only one representation. It's really having that, that fundamental, where is the truth of certain knowledge in your system. And then the fourth one is small and that you, you know, don't have too much stuff. <laughs> Once you've gone through uh, the other three, you know, make sure you've, you know, is there anything that you can collapse? Um, Joe Rainsberger, who's a good friend and mentor of mine, he, uh, has a great post where he talks about how if you really pay attention to these two, the two and three, the names and duplication and how they are a, a cycle, 
they're not, it's not like, okay, name things well and then eliminate duplication. It's if you name things well, then uh, duplication comes out and you start noticing it. And then as you start eliminating duplication, you start noticing naming problems. And so it's this cycle of two and three of naming and duplication and one leads into the other and it doesn't really matter. Um, like he and I used to argue a lot about whether, about the ordering, whether two was naming or duplication. And he put a, a nice blog post, a, I think a few years ago, that was basically that he had realized that because it's a cycle, it doesn't matter where you start. You can start with names or you can start with duplication. And if you really go through and, and rigorously apply these, then number four sort of comes free. You end up with a system that is, is as small as it needs to be. And so four is... Uh, I kind of look at one and four as sort of a, almost a given. Like we should be having, you know, we should be able to prove that our systems work. So tests should be passing, um, preferably automated tests. Um, and it's really the two and three that are the big thing. Right. I think we had this conversation mm -hmm. years ago, and it was just like one of those things that blew my mind because when you're sitting at code and you're trying to think about all the design patterns you can employ or all the different solid principles, I like thinking about this instead, like, is this more clear and is this dry? And that's like a sentence I can keep in my head and, and evaluate a design with. Yeah. And I, I actually, over the years, have um, started thinking more and more of these higher level principles like solid as almost on the same order as design patterns, which are communication devices. And they're ways of looking like, if I have a decision to make in my code, which, which way should I go? So like you don't you don't sit there and implement a pattern, but when you're refactoring and you have a decision of where to go, you head towards a, a well-known pattern. And the same with the solid principles, I feel. And the four rules generate all of it. If you just sit and really, really apply, like you said, the naming and dry, you end up finding yourself building code that uh, aligns with the solid principles. And then you can talk to people and say, when they ask about a certain part of your design, you could say, oh, well, this is, this is more sort of supporting the open-closed principle, or this is um, more supporting kind of the solid principles uh, or, or single responsibility, things like that. I, I remember in, I think it was the 2006 um, Simple Design and Testing Conference, I, it was an open space conference, one of the best conferences at uh, 2006 through 2008 or so. They were fa these fantastic open space conferences. And I remember doing a session about whether or not like the single responsibility principle was generative. Could you generate the rest of the principles from just single responsibility? And, could, and, and were they all generative? Could you just take open closed and generate the rest of the principles from it? And I think that kind of thought process led me into thinking that, well, now we have these, or not now, but these four principles are even more fundamental. And they're the ones that generate the rest of these high-level design uh, guidelines that we think about. Because, you know, if you've ever tried to explain to somebody how to make sure that their system uh, satisfies Liskov, which is a fairly simple principle, but it's hard to explain to people, I think. Or, you know... You know, dependency inversion or, you know, so single responsibility is such a great one because it's like, well, 
somebody will come back and they'll be like, well, it, it is the one responsibility. So this object's responsible for, you know, managing the state of the universe. And right. it's just like, well, I guess that's a responsibility. Um, and so it's hard to have conversations about them. But when you get and you sit and you have a conversation about whether something's named well, it's a little bit more concrete. Are you always confident in your abstractions? And if you're not, what's the process of testing them or not doing them? Well, I, I tend to jump to abstraction very quickly. Um, I find that it's easier to combine poor abstractions into a, another one as I learn more than it is to pull apart abstractions. And so I'm, n I'm never confident in my abstractions to the point where I'm like, this is the right one. But I look at it as, well, here's something that's trying to come out. Here's something that is the system is, you know, sort of bringing up that this is this is a concept in there. I'm going to reify it. It's going to be a uh, class in my system. And over time, as I learn more about the domain, that abstraction, it may turn out that that was the wrong one. And not just may, it most likely is going to turn out that it's the wrong one. But I'm confident that I can uh, collapse it with a different one or make changes to it. Um, if you try not, you know, if you have your dependency graph, be very um, sort of, I don't know what the, the exact term is, but you don't have a really crazy spider web of dependencies. So, you know, everything depends on everything else. If you have a nice, almost hierarchical or tree look for your dependencies, then if you need to change an abstraction, there's only a, a handful of places that use that abstraction. And so, making the change to it is not that difficult and it's not that time consuming. And so um, I, I keep in mind this uh, story that I think I'm, I'm almost positive it was Ron Jeffries said one time that he said when he was younger and he would pair with somebody and, he, and they had differing ideas, he would always fight for his idea and they would have arguments and he would want to try his idea. And he said that over time, he switched over into now he defaults to always using the other person's idea. So if they're differing opinions, always default to the other person's uh, idea. Because if it turns out, you know, and you're going down, you'll find out if it's right or wrong fairly quickly. And if it's, if the other person's idea is right, then you learn something. And if the other person's idea is wrong, then he has confidence enough in his programming ability to adjust from that and to be like, well, this turned out it wasn't right, but we can swing ourselves back into the, into a better path. And I look at it the same way with the abstractions that I build. It's not that I'm confident in the abstractions. It's I'm confident in myself that I'm, I can identify when they're wrong. And not always a hundred percent of the time do I do that, but I can identify when they're wrong. And I'm, um, I'm a good enough developer to say, well, that was the wrong abstraction and adjust it and not like hold on to that abstraction dearly just because it's been around for a while and, you know, be able to adjust as you get more information about your system. But I, I do tend to build abstractions fairly early in the process. So you've done query <laughs> treats for some time now, a lot of them. Are there things you still learn and how do you keep yourself excited about Game of Life? Well, I actually haven't done a code retreat in a while. 
like I kind of stepped back from the whole uh, the whole code retreat community. Um, I had been doing them for I did them for about four years or so, and over time, you know, I over the last probably year year and a half, I've stepped back from it and let the the communities built up enough to where they don't need that sort of, uh, I guess, kind of figurehead or whatever, or somebody who's building the community. I spent a few years really making it, you know, building it up so that there were enough people and some other people who are very excited and moving into leadership roles in the community. I found that towards the very end, um, one of the reasons I pulled out was that I wasn't uh, learning a lot from it. And I had gotten a little bit rote um, of just like this is it, it had become more of just like a training workshop for me that I was doing. So I didn't want to, um, you know, I, I didn't want it to become that. And so I would go do it and it wouldn't be this exciting thing for everybody. Um, but there's it there was always something to learn with Conroy's Game of Life, I feel. I've seen tons and tons of different ways of trying to implement it, but... If I, I've sat down with people and been like, okay, well, let's come up with some crazy, crazy constraint and see what happens. And it's not that I'm learning something from Conway's Game of Life. It's just I'm learning something, and Conway's Game of Life is a very wonderful problem. It's a very rich, deep problem um, if you throw on constraints. So you can fool with it. Last year, a friend of mine, uh, Josh Cheek, and I were saying, well, let's do it without all we have, all we allow ourselves are lambdas, and let's start building. And so we ended up, you know, we we never even got close to Conway's Game of Life because, of course, you have to you have to build an if statement, and to build an if statement, you have to build true, and you have to build false, and then you and then you get to start building lists. And well, now at this point, it would be nice if we had at least some form of a testing library. So let's build a cert and then we built refute and then we built not and, 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 or, and so we, we never even got close to building anything other than just playing around with lambdas. And, but right there, that was a very valid thing to learn from Conway's game of life is uh, what happens if you give yourselves these constraints. And it's the same with the constraints at code retreats of, what happens if you don't allow yourself any return values and no, you know, out parameters or something? And, you know, how does your, how does the way you approach the problem change? And so I think that there's a lot of stuff um, there to do. And that's kind of how I kept it um, interesting for myself as a facilitator was to introduce different constraints and um, see people I've had people who facilitated a few code retreats, you know, ask me the same question of how do you, how did, how do you keep yourself interested and excited about it? And I found early on for the first couple of years that it was coming up with new constraints and switching the idea from as a facilitator of code retreats, I need to be um, excited about the problem and instead be, wow, I'm, interested in doing putting constraints around the facilitation or I'm interested in how exactly am I going to explain the four rules of simple design or how am I going to um, you know adjust the retrospective at the end of the day or at the end of each session and and 
you start looking at the facilitation not as a programming challenge or being excited about the programming challenge, but being excited about facilitation. That's getting really meta. It's like a code <laughs> retreat of code retreats. Yes, yes. Cool. So I think it's time for picks. Did you, uh, did you have a pick, Corey? You know, I've got a couple picks just about papers that I've been uh, reading and a couple books I'm going through. One of my ones that I always do that people tend not to hear about is um, my favorite paper ever. And let me uh, get, it is called On the Criteria to be Used in Decomposing Systems into Modules. It's this wonderful paper um, that was written in 1972 by David Parnas. It's this paper that you read, he goes in and they, they actually look at two different ways to decompose a system into modules and um, find, you know, whether or not utility based or, or sort of grouping them by if this works with files or this works with other things and, or do we group it by things that are like opening and closing and writing and they come to a conclusion. I won't tell you what the conclusion is, um, but that's a, um, paper that I love and I always tell people to read because it is just fantastic. Let me run real quick and get um, the title of the book that I read right now. Because, um, I just got this book, and actually, I don't. I think I don't think showing it will do that much good. We're getting a nice tour of your apartment, though. Yes. <laughs> um, the book's called "An Introduction to Functional Programming Through Lambda Calculus." Oh yes. Um. And it's it's really great. <laughs> um, I got it, and you know it's kind of dry, but it's it's really fantastic. It's building up, you know, sort of the thing I talked about with um, building game of life with no um, with only lambdas, and it's just it just builds for everything from the basics. Um, and those are the two things I would. Uh, be highly recommend I and they, they kind of go back to those fundamentals that I like um, what is you know what is programming those are my two awesome Pam do you have a pick I do have picks so I'm gonna pick goodui.org it's a cool site that I learned about this week that goes through I also like that it has a J and K commands for going through each kind of there aren't really design heuristics as much as design guidelines. Some of them are related to design heuristics, but I just really like them because they give concrete examples of things things to do instead of other things that are less good. I dig it. Cool. Justin, do you have a pick? Yeah, I'm going to pick uh, the Rust programming language. I had kind of dived into it a couple weeks ago, and... Um, the best way to install it seems to be from this website, crates.io. Um, Cargo is their package manager and build tool. Um, a couple weeks ago, it was broken, like nothing would compile. But I tried yesterday again, and everything works. So I'm going to dive in and uh, try to make my URL shortener in Rust. Cool. Jervon, uh, do you have a pick? So my music pick is a song called Origins by an artist called Tennis. And then... Uh, there's a series called Build an App with Corey Haynes from Clean Coders. I've watched the first two out of the four. And they're pretty good. So 
I'll pick the first two. Excellent. <laughs> uh, I'm a brown noser. <laughs> so my pick is Fiverr. Uh, Fiverr's a site where you can go and, and get something done for $5. So I was, I was really late getting my boyfriend a present for his birthday. Uh, <laughs> so I got a couple commissions, like a, a bunch of people on Fiverr will like draw a caricature of you for $5. Then generally you have to give them like 20 more for it not to be terrible. And then like maybe 10 more <laughs> to get like a high resolution image for like 40 bucks. I just got uh, three different people to do one. And uh, one of them was okay, but one of them came out amazing. So I highly recommend uh, Fiverr if you want anything fun done. And uh, thanks so much for coming on, Corey. Uh, where can people find out more about you? I guess CoreyHaines.com. That's... I go through bursts of trying to blog frequently and then I write a few posts and then I don't anymore. So that's kind of the place where there's some, you know, there's a little about page and stuff, but it's Twitter is the place you can go mostly to find out about my cap. And so yeah, coreyhaines.com is sort of the quintessential place for all things coreyhaines. Yeah. I was going to say, I also, Len, I sent you a link to put in the show notes for a coupon for the book for people who are interested in reading it. Great. Thank oh, you. Great. It takes a certain percentage off. I'm not sure. I didn't calculate what the percentage is. So. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank um, you. Awesome. Cool. Uh, so show notes are at turing.cool slash 22. Follow us on Twitter at turingcool. And I'll uh, talk to you guys next week. See ya. Right. Bye. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye. See you guys.